Lyndon Johnson once wisecracked that he played too much football without his helmet. Did we have a president with mild traumatic brain injury? You're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg, your host, and with me today is forensic neuropsychologist Dr. Robert Heilbrunner. Dr. Heilbrunner is an assistant clinical professor of psychology and behavioral sciences at Northwestern University Medical School in Chicago, Illinois. He is a member of the board of directors of the American Academy of Neuropsychology and chairs its practice guidelines working group. He is the consulting neuropsychologist to the Chicago Blackhawks hockey team. Today we are discussing mild traumatic brain injury, also known as MTBI. Hi, Dr. Heilbrunner. It's great to have you with us at the Clinician's Roundtable. Great to be here. Thank you for having me. I guess I just have to start off with the question that everybody out there in radio land is wondering about. Why do the Chicago Blackhawks need a neuropsychologist, and how'd you get the job? To answer the first part of the question is, as, as you might expect, um, contact sports where the head may or may not be involved are especially uh, place a player at risk for possible concussion. And hockey being one of the sports where there's a lot of physical contact and a lot of uh, speed and action and players being thrown against the boards, concussions do occur with a relative degree of frequency in the National Hockey League. I became involved about eight years ago when the NHL decided to have all the players evaluated for concussions as sort of a precautionary measure. So every player in the NHL undergoes neuropsychological testing at the beginning of the season, and then if they sustain a concussion, they're re-examined by the team neuropsychologist, and we can compare the results following concussion to the beginning of the season to see if there's any change in, in thinking skills or in physical functions that can then assist the trainers and the team doctors about decisions related to return to the ice. I mentioned in your bio that you're on the guidelines committee. Are there any guidelines for return to play based on this cognitive testing? Well, that's a great question. In fact, there are a number of different organizations that have put forth their own guidelines. And we have guidelines for different kinds of sports, for hockey, which are different than uh, professional football, which may be different than collegiate football, and are also different from boxing. So it's quite clear more and more that uh, neuropsychology is being used to assist in determinations of returning to those physical action sports. I want to backtrack just for a minute. And for those of us that may not be familiar with minimal traumatic brain injury, could you give us the current working definition? Well, again, I like the return to play. There are different institutions and different working groups that have different definitions. But a mild traumatic brain injury is essentially the mildest form of a brain injury. And it's alleged that the person either is uh, not rendered unconscious, or if they are, it's very, very brief in time. Their period of memory loss surrounding the event is very brief. And typically, the person returns to quote-unquote normal within a couple days or a couple weeks. So even within the phenomenon of mild TBI, we have a mild, moderate, more significant concussion where we can have the person who's just dazed versus somebody who is indeed rendered unconscious for a brief period of time. So it's a pretty kind of fine-grained determination in assessing to what degree the person has a brain injury or concussion versus whether their symptoms are due to something else, let's say like a cervical sprain injury or a whiplash injury where the brain wasn't involved. I think that's an important point for many in our audience who may be called upon either voluntarily or service team physicians, but that loss of consciousness 
is not necessarily present, and in fact, I understand doesn't occur very often. That's indeed true, and, and let's not forget that the great majority of concussions don't even come to the attention of medical professionals. So an individual may sustain a, a concussion and go home and you know have some transient symptoms and never come to their physician. So I think the epidemiology says there's well over uh, a million, a million and a half concussions that are sustained each year, and those are the ones that we know about who come to medical attention. So the numbers are far greater because they're people that never see their physicians. And in the great majority of cases, uh, an individual is not rendered unconscious, but they have an altered mental state. So they may be dazed and disoriented for a couple of seconds or minutes. So you do not have to have a loss of consciousness. Although there are people who believe that it really is mandatory as real proof that the brain has been injured. But I think the prevailing evidence nowadays is that you don't have to have a loss of consciousness to have sustained a concussion or mild traumatic brain injury. Neuropsychology involves the brain-behavior relationships. Are there functional as well as structural correlations to minimal traumatic brain injury? Well, there are, but the fact is that our our traditional uh, radiologic measures like uh, CT scan or MRI of the brain really are not all that sensitive in in picking up on some of the dysfunction that goes on in concussion. Uh, Perhaps some of our newer techniques like PET scan or functional MRI will prove to be better in uh, identifying some changes that take place as a result of concussion. But that's one reason why neuropsychology has gained such prominence because oftentimes uh, an individual who sustains a, a very real concussion and is complaining of symptoms may go see a neurosurgeon or neurologist who does neurologic exam and a CT or MRI that are invariably normal, but yet the person has some very real symptoms. So the astute clinician will then refer them for neuropsychological evaluation because what we do are tests of ability and behavior. And we look at things like memory and attention and concentration, speed of thinking. And these are the kinds of skills and abilities that are often affected in concussion. And that's one reason why neuropsychological tests are really better than some of our structural brain imaging instruments in terms of documenting the effects of a concussion. For those who have just joined us, I'd like to welcome you to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg, and I'm speaking with Dr. Robert Heilbronner. We are discussing mild traumatic brain injury. Getting back to our subject, what's the natural course prognosis from MTBI? By what time should baseline cognitive functioning be back to normal? When can they return to school or sports? Can you give us some sort of ballpark figures so that as a pediatrician, for instance, I can give some guidance to my patients who can't wait to get back into the football game? Well, it really has to be done on a case-by-case basis. However, having said that, some of the most current research to date by some very prominent neuropsychologists who actually have examined uh, athletes have shown that the symptoms of concussion really only last about a week, and then the person has returned to baseline. Previously, it was maintained that perhaps the symptoms may last a month. So it's a very time-limited condition, which raises the question as to why do some people complain of symptoms secondary to an alleged concussion many months or years later when the natural history clearly shows that they resolve much more quickly. So it brings up issues of psychological and emotional contributions and motivational factors, including compensation and malingering, that might explain why someone may complain of symptoms much longer than what you'd expect. How do you differentiate the two? It's a case-by-case basis, and it requires a very detailed clinical history. It requires an understanding of the mechanisms of injury that occur following a blow to the head. It involves understanding what the natural 
progression of recovery is following a concussion. So there are a lot of factors that are involved when determining whether the person's complaints are actually reliable and valid or whether there's something else going on that might lead them to complain of symptoms a lot longer than they should be based upon the injury alone. So various tests we might give, again, the clinical interview, having access to the records, even including the accident records if available. By that I mean if someone's coming to me three months later complaining of symptoms of, uh, of a concussion, and I have access to the uh, emergency medical technician's report saying, you know, the person was fully conscious, they were talkative, there was purposeful behavior, they were able to answer questions. Those kinds of early signs would suggest to me as a neuropsychologist that there probably wasn't any brain disruption. So the fact that the person's complaining many months later would lead me to believe that maybe there's some other kinds of variables or factors that I need to investigate to explain why they're complaining of things at that point in time. Next thing I'd like to ask you about is the sideline evaluation. Again, many in our audience are involved with team sports and have the responsibility to say when this kid can go back in. And, of course, the coach can't wait to get them back in the game. Can you give us some pointers for our audience in terms of a valid sideline evaluation? Well, there is a measure that's being used both at the high school, college, and professional level called the SAC, S-A-C, for Sideline Assessment of Concussion. And it's basically an extended mental status examination that includes components directed toward attention and concentration and memory and processing speed. And it's really something that can be administered by the team physician or trainer. So once the person sustains a concussion and comes off the field, the assessment instrument is given, and ideally the person would have taken this test at the beginning of the season so we can then compare the scores on the sideline to how they were you know, at the beginning of the season. And if the person's scores are discrepant from how they were before in the context of other physical complaints, perhaps headache or nausea and vomiting, not just the thinking problems by themselves, but if all those things are evident, then the team trainers and physicians should be cautious before they make a determination about when the person can go back. And then the individual should be retested perhaps the next day, a couple days later, before it's really determined with certainty that the symptoms of concussion have resolved and they're ready to go back. Athletes obviously are kind of no pain, no gain kind of guys. Is there anything that trainer or the evaluator at the sidelines really needs to clue into to make the decision? Because, you know, I played football and I couldn't wait to get back into the game. Well, they're a highly motivated group, and that's one reason why athletes have been used as a wonderful control group to compare against groups of people who are in litigation who may have sort of a reason for not going back to their uh, job or daily activities. So I suspect that the things that the trainer would look at are, are some of the acute signs of concussion, whether there's nausea and vomiting, whether the player is uh, disoriented, whether they're complaining of problems with memory. Those kinds of things should really raise a concern on the part of the trainer and team physicians that, you know, this person's got their bell rung and probably shouldn't go back this game. Risk of recurrence is always a big concern. Does the first concussion set you up for future ones? And when do you have enough strikes that you're out? This is something that's gaining prominence in the, uh, the general public. I think there isn't a day that's gone by in the past month and a half where concussions in, in football is, is discussed and uh, what are the effects of repeated concussions. And there's some evidence to suggest that former players who are now you know, uh, older have developed symptoms of dementia. And people are alleging that these might be due to the direct consequences of multiple concussions. However, there's other folks who believe that the dementia is something that developed irrespective of the concussions. And I don't think we know all the answers to that yet. But there is a phenomenon called the second impact syndrome, 
which actually occurs more commonly in youth than it does in adults. And this is a situation, honestly speaking, doesn't happen with a great degree of frequency, but when it does happen, it can be fatal, where a child may sustain a concussion and there are various changes in brain circulation and, and vasomotor functioning that are going on as a result of that concussion. And then that person goes back to play and sustains another mild injury, and the two together have devastating consequences that may cause some real significant changes in brain intracranial pressure and other kinds of things that actually lead to death. I hate to end on such a serious note, but I'd like to thank very much Dr. Robert Heilbrunner for being my guest today. We've been discussing mild traumatic brain injury. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, please send your email to xm at reachmd.com or visit us at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening. I wish you good day and good health.